Two friends were walking through a desert. During their journey, they had an argument. These two friends had never argued like this before. Their disagreement escalated. It grew more and more and more heated. And then, just like that, Keslin slapped Baylor right across the face, shocking them both. Baylor's first impulse was to hit Keslin back, even harder than he had been hit, to defend himself and to hurt Keslin in return. But Baylor thought that maybe this might actually lead to more trouble. So he paused and he wondered, what should I do now? What can I do? Can this friendship continue? Do I even want to be friends with this person? Baylor realized that the friendship was at a crossroads. He was at a crossroads. He needed to decide. Would he walk away or would he forgive his friend with the hope of renewal? This week, when I met with our congregation's caring circle, I asked them to reflect with me on the topic of forgiveness, of questions just like these. What do we do when someone hurts us or we hurt them when they metaphorically or literally slap us in the face? It's a big topic and we had a free-ranging conversation. I'm going to just share a little of that with you. Our chat spanned the personal, the deeply personal, and the collective, the concrete and the much more abstract and ethereal. And it encompassed our questions, our doubts, our words of wisdom for each other. We discussed how sometimes it's tempting to forgive quickly, but that perhaps when that happens, we are not being completely honest. Maybe in our minds we forgive, but in our hearts, we are not quite there yet. A strategy of forgiveness we talked about is trying to get insight into the other person's act actions. You've probably all done this. Why did this person do what they did? What made them treat me this way? Why did this person hurt someone else? Or why did I hurt them? Sometimes this can lead us to make excuses for the other person. Maybe make excuses for their bad behavior and it might also lead us to greater understanding and greater empathy. We wondered, can and everything be forgiven? Should everything be forgiven? What about cases of abuse and murder? The kinds of things we heard about just a few moments ago. Our conversation led us to our deep-seated concern 
our lament, if you will, about the poor decisions that leaders and others in power are making and have made in the past, decisions that many of us experience as ravaging our liberal ideals and destroying real lives. Those offenses may or may not be based in a personal interaction, but can nonetheless have a detrimental effect on us personally and certainly on other people and on our planet. Greed, murder, xenophobia are just a few of the examples of these kinds of large-scale issues that impact us globally and in the day-to-day. And of course, because all things are interdependent, everyone suffers from the mistakes that any of us make. Your caring circle also talked about how forgiveness offers a feeling of relief for the person who forgives as much as for the person who is forgiven or who offends. In other words, forgiveness is a form of self-preservation. That's what we called it, self-preservation. The inability to forgive damages our emotional and physical health, and the ability to forgive restores and repairs us. The negative energy of the offense can be diffused, and some love can return. Reconciliation between people may be achieved, but even if a relationship is not repaired, and I think this is so important, even if the relationship isn't restored to what it once was, there can still be acceptance and a letting go of the anger and the grief, or a partial letting go. But sadly, and we talked about this at our caring circle, sadly, some people carry their grudges to the grave. Have you known people like this? Have you known people in your family like this? And yet, letting go can conflict with our desire for fairness, for justice, and for accountability. Our caring circle also observed that there is a certain grace that is involved in forgiveness, a certain grace and ability about when to give and when to receive forgiveness. So, wow. This forgiveness stuff is pretty complicated, right? Really pretty complicated and can be a little overwhelming. And more and more essential, perhaps, than we sometimes realize. It touches every aspect of our lives, every aspect of our daily lives, and it touches us throughout our lives. And we might even wonder whether it also touches us beyond this life. And I'll talk a little about that in a few minutes. The world's religions devote 
energy and time to talking about practices of forgiveness because it is such a huge topic, such an important practice. The Jewish tradition is particularly notable in this regard. Judaism has a time of year set aside just to think about forgiveness, to think deeply about injuries our actions have caused or acts that have injured us. And it's not just one day. Do you know how many days? Ten days. Though, of course, we could practice this every day, right? The period begins with the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, celebrated this year, this past Wednesday. On Rosh Hashanah, God is said to open the books of life and death for the year. Theologically, during those ten days that follow, individuals devote their attention to serious introspection and to taking stock of their lives. They focus on repentance and atonement for their sins during the course of the past year. This is the crossroads moment, the moment when, like Baylor, we wonder whether we can forgive. Do we need to forgive? Can we forgive? Who do we need to forgive? Who needs to forgive us? On Yom Kippur, at the end of the ten days, God is said to inscribe in the books people's fate for the coming year. And then God closes the book for the year. That sounds pretty formal, doesn't it? Pretty final. Having your fate inscribed in a book for the coming year, just imagine having that book thump closed. Which book would you like to have your name inscribed in? Metaphorically speaking, because hopefully we're people of metaphor who can understand whether we understand this literally, many of us, most of us, I dare say, don't think of this literally. Forgiveness is like this. It opens and closes the books of life and death for us. Fortunately, and I love this in the Jewish tradition, each year brings a fresh start. The books are opened again. There's a new chance, a new opportunity to reflect on what has happened. Having our fate inscribed in that book of life is a chance for healing, for a new beginning, a chance to be reconciled to ourselves and to others and to God, the God of our understanding. Now, I suspect if I took a poll and asked for a show of hands that pretty much everyone gathered here, the majority, would agree that Forgiveness is a hoped-for outcome in our lives and in our world. Intellectually and spiritually, we know this is the right thing to do. We know it's the best thing to do. 
even if we do it imperfectly and with great difficulty, and sometimes even if we don't do it at all, we still know that it is the best and most healing thing to do. This ethic of forgiveness actually exists in our own tradition. I think most evidently in our universalist heritage. And when they talked about it, and the Jewish tradition talks about it this way, they use that word atonement. We don't really toss that word around a lot. But atonement means that when people forgive, there is repair and healing and wholeness. Uh, Some people like to be reminded that atonement, if you look at that word, can be broken down into at-one-ment, thinking of it as unity, coming back into that spirit of oneness with themselves, with God, with others. Well, the universalists insisted that every person... Every single person, no exceptions, is worthy of salvation. Another one of those words we don't always kick around. But to put this in contemporary Unitarian Universalist language, we say every person has worth and dignity. And that meant and means that, in part, no sin, no offense, no transgression is too great to be forgiven. And that means that salvation is universal. No one will be punished eternally for their actions. Some things the universalists said might not be resolved in this life. Some things would need to be rectified in the afterlife. So while they agreed that no sin was too great for forgiveness, there was nevertheless a kind of a sticking point with this forgiveness thing. And I think that we can relate to this as contemporary people. Does forgiveness give people a pass on their bad behavior? Will it give people permission to do it again? What about the so-called bad people? How can we make sense of their actions? How can we forgive the people who are destroying our planet and destroying other people's lives? How do we forgive our role in that? How do we forgive people who have viciously injured others Will everyone just automatically share the same fate? Those who led stellar lives and those who did terrible things? And what happens to all the stuff that isn't atoned for in this life? Well, I can't give you easy answers to all of those questions because there aren't any easy answers to all of those questions. I can tell you that one of the things those questions bring up for me is how 
much, how desperately I want there to be accountability. I want there to be forgiveness, but I also want there to be accountability. And if not in this life, in the next one. Whether I might believe there's a next one or not. Well, the Universalists, they had a full-blown theological controversy about these questions. They called it the Restorationist controversy. Some of them thought that salvation came immediately after we died. The consequences of human behavior were limited to what happens here now. However, a majority of our forebears believed something else. They believed that the soul would be educated, disciplined, and transformed after death, and that this would lead ultimately to reconciliation. They probably had my kind of fairness gene that runs deep in me. Um, Those who espouse this period of post-death transformation believed that the consequences of human wrongdoing required a future resolution. Now, of course, for those who don't believe in an afterlife, the possibility of such a future reparation is an impossibility. For me, this idea of a post-death transformation speaks to something else. It speaks to me most powerfully of our faith's historic longing for healing and for wholeness and for accountability and justice here and now. It is an insistence, a persistence that love outlasts hate, that kindness is more enduring than pain, and that transformation is possible. That we owe it to ourselves and each other to begin in love. I believe we owe it to ourselves and to each other to do as much of that restoration, that restoring of unity, that restoring of relationship, believe we owe it to ourselves and each other to do as much of it as we can here and now, regardless of what we do or don't believe about a future life. Our faith inspires and calls upon us to do that because our faith teaches us that we need to ameliorate suffering and pain and disunity and disharmony now, not wait. The grievances and the acts that never get atoned for are never repented and never forgiven, the ones that are taken to the grave, I have to say, I find these deeply disturbing and deeply dissatisfying. 
My longing is for justice and kindness and wholeness in this life, in my lifetime. And my faith helps me to conceptualize the possibility that it can happen, that transformation can happen even when it seems unlikely and improbable and even when it seems impossible. In the story of the two friends, you didn't think I was going to leave you hanging, did you? Baylor decided that the friendship was what he most longed for. He believed that transformation was yet possible. He believed that it was worth taking a chance. Without saying a word, Baylor reached out and wrote in the sand, Today my best friend slapped me in the face. The wind from the desert rose up and blew the words away. When Keslin witnessed this, he turned to his friend and he asked his friend to forgive him. They continued walking together. And they came upon an oasis. And there they decided to go for a swim. They got in the water. When they were in the water, Baylor slipped and got stuck in the mire. And he started to drown. And Keslin quickly reached out to help him and, and saved his life. After catching his breath on shore and without saying a word, Baylor reached out and wrote on a rock, Today, my best friend saved my life. Puzzled, Keslin said to Baylor, After I hurt you, you wrote in the sand. Now I helped you, you write on a stone. Why? Baylor said, when someone hurts us, we should write it down in sand where the winds of forgiveness can blow it away. But when someone is kind, we must carve the kindness in our hearts forever. Let us endeavor, however imperfectly, to write our words of pain in sand and our words of kindness in stone. Let us endeavor to be inscribed in the book of life and to aid others in their effort to be inscribed there. Let us try to the best of our ability to do so in the here and now. To do so is to honor the worth and dignity of us all, every single glorious, beautiful 
human being. To do so is to move closer to healing ourselves and our world and restoring unity and harmony. Amen and blessed be.